0: We're talking about the confusion within. Why do I keep doing what I don't want to do? In a fulfillment of prophecy, we read of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's a pagan king who's declared war on Jerusalem and took the city easily Because God had given the city to this foreign king. As a result, he took with him Jewish slaves, gold, and treasures from the temple of the almighty God. So as to present to his pagan God. But God had a plan for Nebuchadnezzar. God wanted to bring salvation to this pagan king. And so through a series of events, God would declare to the king that there is a greater God than those made of wood and gold. There is a God who rules in the kingdom of men. In the forgotten dream of an image with a head of gold, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, And feet of a mixture of iron and clay, God revealed himself to the king as a giver of dreams, the foreteller of the future, the interpreter of dreams, the one who sets up kingdoms on earth and who takes them down. This caused Nebuchadnezzar to declare in daniel 2 verses 46 and 47 then king nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him the king said to daniel surely your god is the god of gods and the lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries For you were able to reveal this mystery. That dream of the image foretold that King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would last for a while. And then another kingdom would arise. As Daniel had said that the head of gold represented Babylon, the king had another idea. And so he made a statue of all gold not just the head, and called everyone in the kingdom to come and worship it, signifying that his kingdom would last forever. The arrogance and pride of Nebuchadnezzar is blatantly obvious, a pride that God would need to cut down to its roots. And so when the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Refused to bow down and worship this image, declaring to the king that their God is greater than his gods, that their God can protect them from the threat of the furnace of fire, save seeing that the men were not in the, hurt in the fire as a result. And so Nebuchadnezzar was convicted of the majesty and power of the Almighty God. And so he said in Daniel three, then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. He continues. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. We see a king who's at the point of conversion. God made Babylon a very prosperous nation under King Nebuchadnezzar. And this prosperity brought the king much pride and contentment. So much so that God gave him another dream afterwards. This time, it was of a tree. A tree so large that the top touched the sky. This tree brought needed fruit and shade for the animals. Then there was an angel from heaven who was commanded that the tree should be chopped down, except that its stump should remain. In interpreting this dream to the king, Daniel said that the great tree represented the king, but that he will be demoted and humbled and live as a wild animal for seven years. He will eat grass as an ox and be wet with the dew of the ground. Daniel further encouraged the king to turn away from wrongdoing so as to prolong his prosperous reign. So Daniel 4, now we read the words of Daniel. Therefore, your majesty Be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. We see a king who was at the point of being converted with the prior experiences, but a king who is still practicing sin. He acknowledged the God of the Hebrews, but still there was wrong in his heart. We would think by now the king has had enough evidence that the God of the Hebrews, the Almighty God is the only true God, the one who rules in the kingdom of men. A God that men and kings should listen to. For Daniel to be bold and declare to the king that he needs to stop sinning. And his wickedness to the oppressed. Shows that God still does not control this king. Mind you. Do you mind mind if I call this king Brother Nebuchadnezzar? For he attends our church today. Even with all the evidence and mighty works, brother Nebuchadnezzar does not follow the God of all gods. The living, the almighty God. And so one year afterwards, the prophecy came true. The pride of Nebuchadnezzar raises its ugly face. And we continue in Daniel chapter 4. And all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built? He doesn't recognize God here now. As the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, brother Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like ox. Seven times, and that means seven years, will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. I don't know about you, but I see in the story of Brother Nebuchadnezzar a direct prophecy a prediction for you and I. We see here the outcome of a life in which God continually gives us evidence of himself. A God who shows us that he is greater than anything in this world. A God who wants us to stop our ways of sin and pride and declare that there is no other God like him. The prediction I see is that when we keep on ignoring God, He removes Himself and we become like beasts? It is it is as if there is a beast inside of us that only the presence of God can control. And when God removes Himself, that beast shows itself in full force. There are animals among us. Beasts, as if it were to be let loose. If they were let loose, it would create such a havoc in the church. You see, the church is not a place of peace. And if you've ever thought that, you've got to change that, that thinking. It is a place where beasts come to lose their animal instincts. Yes, you and I have these animal instincts that if it wasn't for the power of God, we would be like the devil, devouring others who come in here. God in creating Adam and Eve created perfect humans. But after they sinned, its beast-like qualities were planted within their very being. And we still see its effect today. You know what I'm talking about. Why do Christians gossip? Why do church leaders commit adultery? Why do we lie? Why is there envy and hatred among God-fearing people? These beasts are not only among us, but they are also within us. Sometimes... We can tie these beasts up and have them controlled in the public. But when we go home, we let them loose. You know, you come home from a tough day at work and your spouse says the wrong thing. Oh, they're going to feel the agony of the beast. The beast, if you will, will not be contained. And so we see many cases of beasts in in the world today that keeps destroying homes and at times assaulting and even murdering the ones they claim to love. What is this beast that we must deal with? And what does the Bible have to say? As a people, we need to get a control of this beast. The story is told of Nicodemus. One day, Jesus was speaking to him about the importance of being born again. And we read in John chapter 3 where Jesus was telling him, you need to be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says here, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. We get the idea here that the flesh and the spirit are two entirely different entities. So that it is only when you are born of the spirit can you enter the kingdom of heaven. Which means that you were born of something else before being born of the spirit. We must understand that Jesus was speaking about being born of the Spirit here. And what he really meant was that when we accept Jesus as the source of our salvation, he gives us the Holy Spirit who lives within us, influencing our day-to-day lives. Are you aware of the conflict between the Spirit and the flesh that is going on inside of you? the confusion is real. There are two natures within us, each trying to exert dominance over the other. And as to which succeeds, that depends on the choices we make day to day. What if during the week you heard news of a particular leader, a specific stalwart in the church, Who fell from grace and succumbed to the temptations of sin. Would you still want to come to church? Knowing that the person might sit in the same pew with you? What is it that causes a Christian to sin? I want to declare the words of Paul in Galatians 5.17. For the desire of the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. Paul is clear here. I know sometimes we don't understand Paul's writings, but he's really clear here. The spirit prevents the flesh from doing what it wants, and the flesh prevents the spirit from doing what it wants. They are clearly in opposition to each other. There is a confusion within all of us that we need to be clear about. And so we're going to go back to that scripture reading that Christopher so well read to us. uh, In Romans chapter 7 verses 14 to 25. And we'll pay attention to Paul and what he's writing about this internal conflict the confusion inside of us that confusion between this flesh and the spirit for we know that the law is spiritual but I am fleshly sold into bondage to sin for I do not understand what I am doing that's confusion for I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. But now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. That's the flesh. For I know that God does not dwell in me, for I know that good does not dwell in me. That is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And so Paul will continue the letter to the Roman church. In a way, in the next few verses, in a way that seems to outline His personal conflict. He's getting into a little specifics next. All right? He's no longer talking and speaking in general terms. He's writing about himself in the next few verses. And I want you to look for that. Mind you, this is Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus. An evangelist. A church leader. A church planter a church missionary to foreign lands. He's writing about himself. And so we continue from verse 19. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. I am no longer the one doing it. But sin that dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. He's saying I want to do good but there's this evil that's still there. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person. But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is in my body parts. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul is making here a confession of his spiritual struggles. Does it matter what sin Paul was personally struggling with? The fact is that he had practiced sin before his encounter with Jesus. And up to this point, the desires of that sin probably still lingered on within him. Accepting Jesus doesn't produce the miracle that immediately all the sinful temptations that you're accustomed to just disappears. It never does. In fact, before accepting Jesus, there's normally no internal conflict But after you accept him, and that spirit dwells within you, now there's war within. Now there's that confusion. You have opposing voices telling you to do different things. I I sometimes wonder if we lose church members because they no longer want the internal conflict. They're tired of having to feel guilty. And so it's just better to give up and just leave the church. Let's just give my life up to be controlled by the flesh where I have no mental issues anymore. And so just in case you are wondering about Paul's struggles with sin, I'll just give you a hint of what Paul was struggling with. We go to Romans 7 verses 7 and 8. And what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Far from it. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin taking an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So we see here that Paul is struggling with covetousness of every kind. It doesn't say exactly what he's coveting, but that doesn't really matter. He said of every kind. So that means everything you think you can covet, he experienced it. He was struggling with it. And so the King James Version of this particular verse mentions lust, all right, instead of coveting, it, all right? So maybe, maybe it could be lust, but lust is a form of coveting, right? Because when you lust, you lust after or you covet some, th- someone who doesn't belong to you. And that's another form of covetousness. So when he says he's coveting of every type of of sin that falls under covetousness you can imagine the scope so whatever the struggle is for paul i would like to emphasize that the bible is filled with leaders of god's people who've had this confusion within them a beast that needed to be controlled by the power of god The Bible is laden with patriarchs and leaders who fell into sin. They yielded to the flesh and didn't let the power of God through the Spirit take over. But that didn't mean they were not prepared. God used that opportunity to prepare them further to be more effective than they were before. And so Paul continues the next chapter of Romans, and that'll be Romans chapter eight. Now, in the very first few verses, we see a different tone in Paul's writing. Mind you, this just follows what we've just read about his struggles, and now he seems to suggest that there's some victory coming. All right. Uh, so now we're going to see where Paul is talking about deliverance from the power of flesh that brings death upon the soul of man. And so it says here, therefore there is now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. We see here Paul talking about deliverance from that flesh nature. And I want to, even though he doesn't say that how he overcome covetousness, the fact that he continued the letter with these same words right after. Suggest to me that he was experiencing the victory. He was experiencing the power of God within him to control every kind of covetousness that he had. That blood of Jesus wipes away all sin. That blood that never loses its power. That name of Jesus that's enough for us To win the battle in this world is sufficient to put to death that beast that is within me. And so we want to conclude the story of Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 4, we want to continue what happened to him. And so from verse 34. At the end of that time... I, Nebuchadnezzar, raise my eyes toward heaven. It's amazing when you hit rock bottom. The only place you can look is look up. And my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven. Because everything he does is right. And all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. There was an appointed time for Brother Nebuchadnezzar's downfall. But there was also an appointed time for his upliftment. God in his desire to save men will let men fall and be put to shame. But there is a power in the name of the living God. He may let us run with the beast-like qualities of the, f- <coughs> of the flesh. He might let the flesh take total possession of us while he pulls away the influence of his spirit. That's only to bring us closer to him. And so sometimes we react to people who have fallen. But you will never know if God pulled his spirit away from that person so that they can fall into sin and then he would save them afterwards. So be very mindful of the people that fall within your presence. God might be trying to save them. He may cause us to lose everything we have in this world and in this life. We may lose our jobs because of what we did. Or families. We might be divorced as a result. But no matter what, you're going to still have God. And he can save you no matter what you've lost. You may not get back everything you had before, but you certainly you will get something. And that something starts with God. You will get him. And so when Brother Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes toward heaven, from whence come at his help? Our help comes from God. It is at that time we recognize that God is the only thing we have remaining for us. It is too bad we didn't realize that God was everything we needed before. And So at this time, as we close, I want to invite you, if you're struggling with sin... It's been hard. You've been going about it the wrong way because in some circles, you've got to get it right before you come to church. In some circles, they'll tell you, you've got to straighten your life out before you come and sit in the pews next to me. Otherwise, you'll give me something to talk about. And so we try the logical things to do on our own. Well, I'm just going to get this right. I'm just going to stop practicing sin. And you try to do it by yourself. I want you today to surrender that problem to God. A God who wants to dwell within you and give you some kind of fighting power against the flesh. Against that beast that seems to come up every now and then. For that's the only power you have. You can't do it on your own strength. You can't do it because someone tells you you got to do it and change your life around. And so if you feel like you are a beast in church today... You are at the right place. For it is here God will speak to you. here God will fill you with his spirit. And he will continue to fill you with his spirit in your homes for the next few weeks, for the next few months, for the next few years. If you keep surrendering to him. Obviously the flesh will want to keep coming. But what do you do? You have a choice. Because you know you can't do it. You need to surrender. And so whenever the beast raises its ugly head in your life. That's when you drop to your knees and surrender it to God. God, I can't do this anymore. Take control of this part of my life. I leave it all to you. And so if you're struggling with something that you haven't had the control over, or if you've somehow gotten control of it because you, you've now practiced talking to God to give you that control, but every now and then, you know, something happens and your mind plays tricks with you. You might not have fallen, but the thoughts come, I wanna, and the desires come, I need to go back and enjoy what I used to enjoy. If you like that, uh, would you stand with me as we pray? As we surrender these things to God today? And may God bless our souls. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you. And we are conscious of the fact that there is this war within our souls. We place our hands into your care, dear God. Knowing that we cannot do this on our own. Dear God, we rely on the power of your spirit here today. In our lives, bless your people who are in church and bless those who are listening online. Pray that you'll speak to all of us today. May that power be felt. And dear God, keep driving us to our knees. For you our only strength. We place ourselves before you. And we lift you up. The only living and almighty God. The one we call our Father. In the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.